HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street. Do you need a conference room for your next meeting? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. This is Coral, host of Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for two years, and even after all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices of our network. Each week, I record my show in the HRN studio, made from two recycled shipping containers, because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important stories existing at the intersection of food and culture. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting Meant to be Eaten in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. Hi, I'm Allie Kane. Welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building and growing consumer brands. When we launched a line of fresh sauces, I knew we were jumping into something crazy. Haven's Kitchen is a cooking school, cafe, and event space. A product that people buy in grocery stores is an entirely new business, and I had a lot to learn. So in my efforts to get myself educated, I started meeting everyone I know and respect who could advise me on production and distribution, sales and legal, PR, and social media. Then I started having those conversations here as a podcast so that other entrepreneurs can learn from them as well. This is the story of Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Sarah Foley, Managing Director at SWAT Equity Partners, an early-stage venture capital firm focused on investing in emerging consumer brands. She sources deals, does diligence, structures the investments, and then monitors them along the way. Sarah has 20 years of both finance and operating experience across a variety of industries. She's held corporate executive investment and numerous board of director positions, assisting companies through growth to turnaround stages of development. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Um, so you have what I would call a, a hardcore business background. Is that I mean, I would say say? that I feel I have a pretty heavy finance background. Yes. And as I continue to look at so many amazing companies and uh, get excited about the passion that the founders have about why they chose to go down such a fun path, Mm -hmm. I get more and more access to these different types of business models so that you can 
really start to see similarities and differences uh, across them all as to what seems to be working, what Ooh. might be working less. I'm very excited to hear what <laughs> but might that's be working. What, I feel like a business model voyeur. Yeah. Um, but what I do is overlay kind of data because I'm a bit of a geek about yeah. how the data helps us interpret um, solutions to some of the problems that you might be having. They're not always the answer, but right. it's sometimes helpful. No, I love that. It, you know, I, I do want to get kind of back into, you know, the what you wanted to be in fourth grade yeah. question, because I, <laughs> I do like that question a lot. But, you know, I was talking to my daughter and we were talking about going to the doctor. Right. And I said, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm Maybe it's just the me getting older. But <laughs> I just feel like someone who's seen it 3,000 times versus someone who's seen it 10, I just kind of... I kind of trust them a little more. Right. It's not that they're better doctors or that they're better because they're older. It's just a function of it's not new to them or, right. you know, they've seen something like it or yeah, they can, experience. they can apply some experience and it's valuable. Yeah. Okay. So, so you majored in math and econ. I did. That, <laughs> I did. It was technically called mathematical methods in the social sciences. Okay. Were you always into mathematical? No, ma I feel like math it? was probably my worst subject. Really? Uh-huh. As a kid? As a kid. In what high were school, you into? Um, I was more into art history oh. and other kind of social sciences, right. but I figured I need to find a way to make some money. And so you are the myself. second person on, you know, there was a lawyer on here oh, early really? on. Yep, Kara from Genuzi, and she sure. said something very similar. Like it was a very thought out, practical, which by the way, is a very intelligent way to think about your life. I did not. I majored in religion. So it wasn't exactly. Well, that's like, a different one. Yeah, uh, but uh, important yeah. too. Well, okay. So going back, do you remember being? Do you remember being like nine or ten? And and what like what kind of kid were you? Oh, I'm. I was. I probably would be classified as curious and intense. I would think <laughs> maybe by my parents more intense, but. I, what I really wanted to do um, in grade school and even in junior high is be a veterinarian. Oh, that's adorable. I Did had, you grow up in a city? Or I grew in, up in a rural community rural. in Minnesota, uh -huh. but, you know, an hour south of Minneapolis-St. Paul. Right. Um, it wasn't, it was a town of 25,000, and um, my family owned the newspaper. Okay, this is great. And then consolidated some of the other um, newspapers in the area and in the county. This uh, is why I love doing this. I know. Because <clears throat> honestly, learn, how right? would I know that, right? That's so cool that your parents... So you did Did you think you wanted to be a writer or never? You know, my, my father was a publisher and had been in the family for some time. Right. He actually ended up selling it when I was um, in senior high. Right. And I thought it, 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 maybe he'd want one of us, I'm the oldest of three, to right. be in that business. But then the opportunity went away when he right. sold it. But what he did inspire in me is the ability to write. Right. And so I did join our high school newspaper, and I was the first female sports editor. Wow. Because they weren't giving enough coverage to the female, right. the, the, the women's swim team, which right. I was also on, and we were really good. So you were like, <laughs> so if like, someone needs to write about this. it, so I will. Yeah, I'm going to fix this, and did, I guess I'll do it. Did watching him run a business and then sell a business or acquire businesses along the way 
do something in your brain about business and about buying and selling? That's a good question. I think, you know, both of my parents were pretty entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. And what did your mom do? She was officially trained as a medical technologist. So she was in the lab drawing your blood and doing all of those tests. Right. but then she opened a flower shop oh. in town, which um, my father was part of, too, because she had a love for design. Mm-hmm. Before that, she was a part of a women's group that would make art and sell it in, at the beginning, a garage as part right. of the Christmas sale season. Yep. And then they opened a permanent location. So she's, they've both been incredibly entrepreneurial, and I think that really inspired the way I decided to, while I work in a large organization, find some entrepreneurial right. path yep. within the organization to uh, feed that need. So you were a swimmer and a writer and you wanted to be a vet. Yeah. <laughs> and then you went to college and majored in, in math. math. And economics. And that's basically, I mean, I, I, it's now become a joke. Maddie's probably going to like make fun of me, but I think I say on every episode of this that I failed econ freshman year of college, <laughs> which is true and embarrassing, but now clearly I've You like, are using it in your everyday life. I now. use it. Well, I use the fact that I failed as like a, it's like comic relief an or ice something. Breaker. Yes. It's an icebreaker. <laughs> but how did you like, did you take that 300 person. Where'd you go to college? Northwestern. Okay. So I'm assuming that it was a similar sort of like 300 person econ 101 freshman year first semester yeah. situation. Yeah. And you just were like, oh, I happen to be really good at this. I think I'll major in this or. No, I think I'm not sure I would ever have called myself really good at right. math or economics right. then. Um, I just knew I needed to find something I did really, I liked, right. but I knew it would, if I could figure out a way to apply it to business, then I could figure out a right. way to get a job after so graduating. That's so smart at 18. I just don't <laughs> feel like very many, I don't, I feel like I we all kind of know conceptually that the market for art historians yeah. and religion majors isn't, you know, crazy, but I don't know how many people actually then go and they're like, so I'm going to, you know, major in something that will get me employed, you know? I mean, unless you kind of love it. And there are people who go in loving it. Right. You know, but. Well, I was never going to be a macroeconomist. Right. That part of understanding markets and countries and right. the impact the world had on the global right. economy was less interesting to me than how do I apply right. what it takes to build a yeah. business, employ people, make some money. Well, and some that would have been neat if I had, if I felt like I could learn that. Yeah. Th- that's kind of where my, mine was my pretty brain practical. Divided. I mean, yeah. mine was pretty theoretical. It wasn't right. a business degree. Right. It was a microeconomics right. largely degree. Yeah. I would have loved, I mean, I, I look back and I'm, I'm sort of unhappy and ashamed with myself for not having focused more on business. I don't, it's ridiculous. But yet here you are as an amazing founder of a company in New York City with and a, another business that with you've With a dearth. Running. Like there's a dearth. <laughs> like, I don't know if there that's is. the right word. There's like a, there's like a big space in my brain that's like, I, for me to figure out a percentage of something or for me to figure out a margin, yeah. I'm still like the thing minus the thing right. divided by the thing. <laughs> right. It's it's There's nothing natural about it. And I feel like maybe had I, or even just forget about the sauces for a second, even just like I have these different revenue streams, they have different margins, they make different amounts of money. What percentage of my rent should I allocate? You know, those are things that I 
would love to just have at my fingertips that I have, I have to focus so hard to think about. Um, but I don't know why this became like a, well, what you can so do is find the person myself. that can do that for you. I know. You don't have to be a master that, and everything, but they, they aren't available at three o'clock in the morning <laughs> no, when you're trying to true. figure something out in your brain and you just want the answer. Yeah. And so you sit up and try to make an Excel model for three hours alone. I did yeah, not know that I, about you. I know it's, it's something we don't talk about very often. <laughs> so you graduated and then did you get a job in a business? I got a job um, at Morgan Stanley. Okay, great. Where I worked in the mergers and acquisitions department. And was that like, do you get to choose sort of, I want to be in M&A or I want to be At the in... time, we did have some um, input right. into the departments that we were interested in. And so you moved to New York? So I moved to New York from Evanston or, right. you know, outside Chicago. And I moved with two other fellows who had also uh, oh, received fun. offers to move out here. We were didn't know anyone else. So that's great. <laughs> lived in the same apartment for a year. And then we kind of splintered into right. probably the better relationships one has as a roommate. Yes. And um, was there for two years. And it was absolutely a boot camp. And you learn. And you learn and learn and learn. Yeah. You're just one big sponge. Oh, uh, so that kind of opportunity I was eternally grateful for. And did you get, I feel like those analyst jobs tend to be sort of like not connected to the larger picture of what's going on, but go make that model. Yeah. And then you don't really know, but were, did you, did you feel like you kind of understood this company needs to grow in this particular area? And so they've identified these three companies to potentially look at to buy. And then like, did you learn it that way or was it just much more like quant? It was more quantitative right. support um, and high level Mm -hmm. of uh, this is a company that wants to acquire um, another business in another sector that's adjacent, right? Uh, but they don't have the expertise internally, so they're going to go buy it instead of build it. right? Uh, but there was a lot of work I did with um, a different type of buyer of a business, and that is what we call financial buyer or uh -huh. private equity firm right. who is in the business of investing capital and then um, generating return on that capital. That's a very good segue into <laughs> <laughs> the next part of our um, discussion. And I did a lot of work with that type of you know client of the firm, mm -hmm. helping them, um, for the most part, sell the businesses that they had uh, already right. been Two in the larger strategics. To the next right. buyer. The next bigger. Yeah, which is generally guy. more strategic in nature. Right. But what I found um, more and more curious is what happens after you buy the company. Mm -hmm. And then, then what do you do? That's when my job, you know, was over. Right. And the private equity um, firm was required to figure out a way to generate a profit in yep. a, sh a shortish period of time yeah. in, a, in a lifespan of a business, yeah. three to five years. Yeah. So that was what uh, got me enamored with private equity. And so you decided to leave M&A. And where did you go next? So I left Morgan Stanley um, and went to Greenhill and Company. Okay. When Greenhill, when Bob Greenhill started it in 1996. Okay. And, and what that did was, Greenhill? We do? were an advisory boutique. Right. Uh, so we were doing. I was doing a lot of the same work, but probably on a more intimate mm -hmm. level because it was a very small team yeah. at Greenhill that was working with our client. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't have as many layers in the middle. Right. Which, Which is good. more that, like, yeah. I understand the, all the context I'm here getting and more and more exposure right? and learning more and more about uh, the bigger picture and then the details required to build the picture. Right. And that was amazing. And then 
you were there for how long? I was there for about two and a half years. Okay. Um, You're like a millennial. I know. I switch jobs all the yeah. time. Yeah. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just, that just is what they well, say. Well, you know, like, to be honest, I never thought jobs. I'd leave Morgan Stanley. Right. Um, and then this opportunity came up. Uh, you know, I definitely met with the folks at Green Hill. Right. And was uh, fascinated by the ability. See, it was tapping into that entrepreneurial spirit of getting yep. in on the ground floor yeah. and helping to build a business. And that's really what excited me. Absolutely. Um, so I joined with another uh, actual analyst classmate of mine uh-huh. from Morgan Stanley. We had a great time for that two and a half years. I helped open the London office. Awesome. Uh, met that team there. And they've since done an incredible job building that business, taking Amazing. it public and so on. So for me, that was a, a great experience to build on those analytics right. that are needed to build a model, understand how to structure some kind of acquisitions and a lot of different things. But we were also making investments right. uh, at Green Hill and Company, largely through kind of the partner's capital. Right. Did you get to So we get to work too? on some yeah. of those diligence uh, projects, right. which was, again, igniting that fire to go figure out what happens after you invest in the company. And then your next move was? Then my next move was to a private equity firm called Chartwell Investments, right. which I spent a non-millennial portion of my career <laughs> at, uh, which was about 12, 12 years. Oh, wow. Right. So, uh, And there they had already started investing in their portfolio, um, and I was able to get involved managing that portfolio right. as well as making more new acquisitions of businesses. Did you find the, the fun part? Or like in order of fun, right? Like, were you kind of like, ooh, that looks like a fun area. I'd like to see who's doing new stuff in that area. Or were you a person who would walk through the grocery store and be like, ooh, I haven't seen this sauce before. I want to check out this company. Like, how did you, were you into kind of the, the picker part? Or were you sort of more into... um we've got to figure out if this company makes sense for us. Here are the metrics that we use. Sarah, go figure apply it out, those make metrics. A first to, pass. Yeah. I think in the beginning, more of the latter, mm-hmm. um, as I was learning across a lot of different business models and reviewing the kind of information memorandum or marketing materials that was put together to illustrate and articulate the business. Mm-hmm. And then the plan for the next five years, right. because that's what we were investing behind. Right. Yeah. And our mantra there was we were not really industry focused. We were more agnostic, but mm-hmm. really focused on companies that had strong financial characteristics right. um, and a management team with a plan that we could get behind right. and support. Got it. Um, so I looked at a lot of different types of businesses, um, not all in what I do now, which is pretty exclusively consumer. Right. But we had a few, and they were um, like Bell Sports, mm-hmm. which is a bicycle and snow sport helmet and then other accessories right. sold in big mass merchants like right. Walmart or Target, and then in a kind of the specialty independent channel, bike shops and right. snow shops on the mountain. Uh, and, and this was before direct-to-consumer. Very, very much. Yeah. Very much before direct-to-consumer. <laughs> um, and had all of the same kind of challenges that they still do today, but they didn't have the ability to communicate as directly quickly with their and consumer. directly right. with that end tar- you know, that consumer. How did you end up going to Eleni's? <laughs> I 
had a friend uh-huh. who Eleni had hired to help her run the business. It's a cookie company. It is a delicious cookie company. Yes. Um, And my friend named Louise asked me to come out to their offices in Mm -hmm. Long Island City Mm -hmm. and work on a project post-Hurricane Sandy. Mm-hmm. Or what are we calling it? Superstorm, maybe Sandy. Oh, really? We've downgraded it. Well, I don't know what it was technically right. <laughs> referred to, but it I was think of a it problem. As a hurricane. Yeah, yeah, it was a big, big storm. Right. And and they were in Chelsea Market. They were in Chelsea Market, and um, they had the power power outage right. challenge. So did we in that area because they were below Thirty Fourth Street. Yeah. And at the beginning, she was really trying to figure out what kind of insurance coverage mm-hmm. and then claim might I have here to help me with the fact that the Chelsea store is going to be closed for some uncertain period of time mm-hmm. until the power is restored. Right. So I came out and started digging into that a little bit, but it was clear that she had an amazing growing business yeah. that had lots of different layers of, of complexity to it. Yep. And um, we got along well, right. I think. And I was intrigued to help her, I guess, use more and more data and mm-hmm. really help filter through the data she had been collecting for a while yep. uh, to help support the decisions that she was instinctually making yep. um, uh, and back them up. That sounds like a dream. I would <laughs> or, love you to know, have figure a out maybe the instincts are, are off a little bit and this is why. Yeah. And so we, I spent a lot of time with the data and trying to uncover uh, trends costing, yeah. et cetera. So um, we did a lot of work over the final kind of two and a half years that I was there, which was a total, lo- I mean, it was just an amazing, amazing experience. Lots of stress around yeah. how do you make all of these pieces fit together in a way that you grow and yep. you can pay everybody that's working with yep. you and and create some profit margin to reinvest in the business too. Which makes you one of the um, financy people that I really <laughs> love talking to because of that operating experience. Because I understand that you know I can't model, but I I always sort of come back to like I've run a profitable business for seven years. Something's got to be Absolutely. kind of functioning well, right, right? And having someone kind of look at your business, only having done it on paper as opposed to like having been in that sort of, well, you can't just cut this by 10% because those are people and they have... You can't cut a tenth of a person. Right, like, and they mean a lot to me and to the business and it doesn't work that way, you know? And so I think that it just makes, I think it makes it for a better investor. Oh, I definitely feel like a better investor. I do want to get to like the juice though. So how did you get to SWAT? Okay, (laughs) how to move from SWAT. So with Eleni, we had accomplished... A lot of things, launched a new website, uh, really refocused her wholesale efforts, took some cost, not compromising quality right. out of the product so she could have more running room mm-hmm. to build and scale that channel. Um, but I missed investing. Mm-hmm. I missed that ability to be that business yeah. model voyeur, uh, but it had really reignited my passion for consumer. Yeah. So coincidentally, one of my partners from Chartwell Investments uh, introduced me to one of my new partners here at SWAT Equity Partners named Mark. Mm-hmm. And we had known each other. He helped finance the last company that we invested in at Chartwell. Mm-hmm. And Mark and his friend, Richard, my third partner, 
Uh, we're looking for someone to run what they were building, which is a firm to exclusively invest in consumer brands. Right. And at the early stage. Which is kind of a dream job for It's you. a total dream job. Yeah. I feel like at the end of however many years, I don't want to admit I've been doing this, yeah. I've found my my um, perfect job. I agree. I love, I'm so inspired every day. Amazing. I don't feel like it's his work. I really do feel like it's fun. Well, because you get to pick things that are going to be awesome or have the seeds <laughs> hope, of awesomeness, yes. put money into them well, and you make them awesome. see so many incredible ideas yeah. that have been executed into what are at least the beginnings of a company, yeah. whether they're products or a service. You don't know if there's truly a brand there yet because yep. it's still early enough. But that leap that one takes as an entrepreneur, yeah. I'm so in awe of. Very cool. Um, but I want to be the I want to be the one that you need to help finance your growth, right? Rather than go off and start the business myself yet. So for Mark and Richard, they were looking for that person to really help in the Make venture capital like community right. develop the pipeline of opportunity we could That's look awesome. at, do the work on diligencing. Yep structure and clothes where necessary and then manage a portfolio. It's awesome. And I was kind of, you can do jelly of to their peanut butter. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and Great. we're going to spend 25 minutes just giving founders advice. Great. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that provides offices, co-working, event spaces, and a brand new podcast recording room. Have you been dreaming of starting your very own podcast in Brooklyn? You can now rent space in 100 Bogart's custom-built podcast room to record interviews, voiceover, and commentary. The room is fitted out with two microphones, mixing board, and a MacBook Pro running Pro Tools. You can rent the space by the hour, and a rental of an hour or more includes a 100 Bogart co-working pass. That means complimentary coffee, tea, and access to your own desk for the rest of the day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on your next audio project. 100 Bogart has the space and amenities you need to kickstart your podcast. Learn more at 100bogart.com or call their team at 718 362 Three five three nine. Hi, I'm back with Sarah Foley from SWAT Equity. Okay, so you said something at the very beginning, and it was in it was what got you excited about companies like however many jobs ago. And you said strong financials and a management team in place that has put together a plan that you felt like you could get behind. So let's, to use a really annoying word, unpack that a bit. (laughs) When you say strong financials, what exactly do you mean? And when you say management team, what do you mean? And when you say a plan that you can get behind, what do you mean? I'm going to have to give up all my secrets. Yes. So with respect to financials, um, and maybe... Sorry, I'm going to back up one second, just so people understand. At what stage, yes, generally? That's what I was about does, to do. Right, does, does Let's SWAT give some invest. context, yeah. right, to that uh, because it's important. SWAT equity partners invest, as I said, exclusively in consumer brands, whether they're products, services. 
It can be in technology and sometimes even the technology that may power a consumer right. business. Uh, but we're looking at companies that are at a certain stage in size. The stage is referred to as seed mm-hmm. to series A. Okay, can you define that? Because I thought seed, well, I thought I was seed, but turns out I'm like early seed or something. And like I think it's, you know what, something. I think the nomenclature evolves. Yeah. Uh, which is why the other filter that I use is more important to me, and that is size. Size. So I look at companies that are between a million of annual revenue. Okay, and when you say that... So I'm going to give you a great example because yeah. it, because people talk about run rate and yeah. I'm like, run rate's kind of a load of horseshit, frankly, because every business is cyclical. If right. I went by my run rate in February, I would not be whatever. If I went by my run rate in wedding season, yeah, I'm like different. a $5 million right. business, right? right? So I'm always a little bit like, hmm. but when you say annual, but on the other hand, the flip side of that is I'll be very specific we think we're going to be at about 500,000 in sales in the sauce business in 2019 mm-hmm. and 2 million in 2020 at okay. some point in between now and yeah you'll be at a million we'll be at a million and it probably is like Q1 of next year right so when you say annual is like how would you tell a founder to sort of define what that is well like, the first thing i do is say it's an annual figure not cumulative Okay. Um, so I don't want them to think that they may have been able to generate a million dollars of total sales last since 10 launching. Years. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I definitely require you to be post-launch. I want your product or service out in the market where you're seeing how it has developed traction right. with your targeted consumer. And if there's a real fit right. for the product right. uh, or the service in the market. Um, the million dollars can be run rated for me. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I can do it depending on the business on a monthly, but most likely I'm doing it on a quarterly basis. Right. And the other thing that I can do if it's, you know, more of a consumer packaged good type of business is think about how many doors mm-hmm. are they in today? Right. How many additional doors have they already closed right. in their sales pipeline of retailers that yep. have committed to buy, yep. placed a purchase order, but they've only shipped once, right. for example. So if you kind of adjust and mm-hmm. annualize some type of intermediate doors average for what you think they'll have been in from the beginning yep. to the end of the year, as well as some velocity, which you know is another new yes. word, but some velocity assumptions around what we think they can sell through. Right. So the way that I've been telling people who listen to the podcast, yeah. hopefully correctly, to think about velocity is just that units per store per week. Right. If you're really early, I don't know that you've got to do it by SKU. Yeah. As you get bigger, you it's units yeah. per SKU per store per week. But I think... When you're just starting off, you know, are you selling one jar of your thing at each store right. per week or like us? Is it more like 15? Exactly. Or whatever. A lot. Um, a lot. Um, and that velocity is significant because it shows. Sell through. And right. consumer demand. Right. Because the the sales are us to Whole Foods. The velocity is Whole Foods to the consumer. Exactly. Got it. Okay. That's really important to know. It is important to know. And it's not, though, the end-all, be-all metric. Right. But it's a pretty important one in that consumer package goods 
yes. universe of, right. of categories that I look at. And that can apply to food, to beverage, right. to beauty. Makeup, right. To makeup, to pet food. I mean, there are a lot of ways in which that velocity metric is used. So stage early. So stage is seed to series A. Right. And in the bridges that are sometimes required to go to and from in between. Right. And then size. the size is a minimum of a million and yep. up to 10 plus million. Okay. Um, so that implies generally that the companies are raising a million right. to seven-ish million um, on average. And if you are a company such as mine and you're raising about a million, yeah. you don't, you don't want to take that whole million, right? SWAT right. doesn't. So our, this first fund that we right. raised about two and a half years ago and have been investing was designed to prove our theory of how, which I should also yeah, talk about. <laughs> um, it's a combination of kind of certain skills that we as the partners believe we can utilize to help both source and then pick Mm -hmm. uh, the investments that we want to get behind. But what we aren't doing in this first fund is, is kind of leading the round yet. Right. That's hopefully going to change soon as we're raising more capital that'll give us, uh, the ability to do that. Right. And so when you say leading the round again, I just like getting super, what does that mean? Like it means being the big Check. It means writing, you know, the majority probably right. of the round. Right. Uh, sometimes it could mean writing the entire round, right. underwriting the entire round. But you are really doing uh, most of that diligence in the deeper dive areas of understanding the company's founders, business models, market, uh, customer focus, etc. Right. Um, and then you are the one negotiating right. with the founder on the terms in which you right. will invest As in their As opposed to not leading when those terms have already, have already been set largely and been you just set. write a check and you kind of, That's right. you, it's like a, a, maybe a little shallower of a... Less, of a, yeah, less work required right. because I'm not having right. the conversations, right. um, doing the legal work right. to draft the documents. And would you say less expectations of rights that you have over things in the company or, yeah. you know. Yeah, we're not taking a board right. seat. Right. Um, if there is a board. If there is a board, right. but I highly recommend putting one in place right. at least. We'll the- talk about that. <laughs> okay, so that, so then, and then strong financials. Strong financials. Um, I thought a lot about that one as, as you gave me a heads up on some of my questions. Mm-hmm. And it, it does matter a bit by category, but I look at, Revenue growth year over year mm-hmm. um, in a consumer packaged good business that is distributed in the more traditional wholesale way yes. of going into stores, physical brick and mortar stores. Which like again is why I like talking to you because <laughs> I do find that some of the venture venture folks, like they're a little bit, I think I've told this story, like I, I met someone and he was like, why is that 5 million? That should be 10. And I was like, I, those are all physical doors yeah. that I have to open. And by the way, I need to have brand ambassadors in every one of those doors doing merchandising and doing demos. And also, by the way, like that's, that would be doubling the regions. And we don't want to do that. You want to like build strong in a region. And he right. just didn't get it because it's just not, it's, it's not his I think physical distribution of- is very different than like a tech thing that yeah. can just like yeah. 
double and double and double and double ad infinitum and just be 10 million in three years. I no, mean, and I they don't, don't have you know. the same kind of customer acquisition costs. Right. They have a different um, sales process. Right. You know, in a SaaS software business, you know, that sales process could take months. Right. But once you've signed that organization up and you have right. a thousand seats under license, right. that's a nice size monthly revenue amount. Yep. Um, but you're not spending money on Facebook Right. advertising to find that customer to right. come either into the door or go to your website too. So going back, so strong financials. So revenue growth uh, is important and it varies a little bit by category right. of beauty to food to yeah, pet, et cetera. Fresh food is like 40%, yeah. beauty's like 90 or something. Like uh, well, 80. now you're talking, I feel like margins. margins instead right. of your uh, month over month or year over year or quarter right. over quarter growth. Right. I look at that velocity figure for a lot of the businesses. Um, I will understand um, if there are more products in, in the business and more, some have more recently launched, mm-hmm. you know, what, how has that performance looked for the earlier product launches versus what they've learned in their more mature products. Interesting. Okay. Um, I absolutely spend time on gross margin. Right. Yes. Which is um, indic- indicative, I would say, of, of how much they know about their supply chain and the expertise they have on the team to manage. One of the things that I feel like I talk a lot about, I meant for this podcast to be a very supportive, helpful, yeah. you go and I'm going to try to save you six yeah, months exactly. of trying to figure something out. I feel like there are times when I get a little bit strident almost, and I don't mean to, but I just feel like I have a lot of friends in the CPG world who are only looking at sales Mm. and they figure that the margins will figure themselves out or that everything's okay because they'll get expensive margin or yeah, or they'll get venture money and it'll be okay. And then eventually, you know, they'll have sort of, the size and the scope to figure out how to like lower the costs of their ingredients or their packaging or right. their distribution. Right. I don't. And what I don't like to have with a, a founder diligencing the gross margin is that the only answer for how it's going to improve is economies of scale. Right. That's not enough. Right. That's just not enough of an answer yet. I need to know that you've done more right. work, really understanding your supply chain. Right. You have options B and C available so that if your packaging doesn't arrive from China on time, what, what do you do so that you don't run out of inventory? And do you also feel, cause I've also sort of gotten again, my little weird feeling of the zeitgeist, (laughs) but I feel like there is a shift a little bit. Like it felt to me like those top line numbers mattered a lot more and the margins meant a little bit less for the last couple of years because there were just all these people it seemed like who were really eager to get into consumer just because it was kind of fun and sexy and now I feel like there might be a little bit of a you know I I'm like a Henry Ford business model person I'm (laughs) like if the car can't support the marketing for the next car then you know like I'm a little (laughs) bit of a Luddite that way but I do think there's like a little bit of a shift back. Oh, that's good. Yes. I think I'm seeing it too. In fact, I'm also seeing more emphasis on the EBITDA uh, kind of line, that. which is all it's, it's your margin after all of your expenses and before you pay tax, which you're probably not doing much of because yeah. you may be losing you more might, money yeah. as you invest in the brand right. and building your business but and your team. 
But I spend a lot of time on gross margin. Right. Um, and then we spend time trying to figure out the the bigger areas of, it's really team and marketing. Right. Expense and how you're thinking about growing the organization. Right. Give me the org chart and let's walk through it in more detail. What are the more important positions that you need to have more full-time, meaning company dedicated versus the services that may be available to rent right. on a monthly basis right. until you can afford right. to bring them in-house. Right. Uh, and I think that's a very, very useful model to follow, too. Yep. Um, but we spend a lot of time thinking about what, in the, you know, a lot of different marketing strategies, but I need some tightness around right. for the next six to 12 months. Right. What are you working on and testing right. in your various advertising spending to um, see results? Right. It's funny, Maddie and I were just talking about it today because we, we were launching in the Midwest. Yeah. And we have, you know, 100 plus doors that we're going to open in like right. one fell swoop. And we're very, Yay. you know, we're, yeah, it's amazing, but it's also sort of the first time we're like outside of our home yes. stadium. Yeah a little bit and we don't have the benefit of having 25,000 people who already follow us on Instagram or people coming to classes every night. Right. I mean, we're not known by everyone in the New York region, but we're known better here than we are oh, in yeah. Chi-Town. But we were talking today about, you know, if we made a pie chart, what percentage of it would be like events? What percentage of it would be just digital ads straight up? What percentage of those digital ads would be video versus still versus sponsored versus mm -hmm. not like how, you know, how do we how do we think about launching a new region? And I, I have in the back of my head, this is why this is why I'm not as far along as I feel like I am. Like, I feel like we have a proven concept. I don't know that an investor would look at us yet and say it's proven until we're kind of out of a little bit of geography, home base, diversity. Right, exactly. Yeah. So how we launch this is very important, you know, on, and now you're sort of reiterating that. So you you feel the pressure? Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So Maddie feels duly no pressured. pressure. Um, I, we only have like two minutes left, so there's so many questions I have, but, um, you did mention red flags and you did mention kind of key indicators and in all of your, you know, data and analyzing, what are a couple things that founders like can just take home with them right now mm -hmm. that they should either do or not do, okay. depending on what you've seen. So the first thing um, would be when you build out a financial model, mm -hmm. don't just focus on the P&L, mm -hmm. the revenue and expenses side. You've got to build your balance sheet to know what your working capital yep. looks like. So know what your accounts receivable, your inventory investment is, and when you owe people accounts payable yep. amounts to basically make the product. Because so that generates yeah. a working capital figure, right. which is going to be an investment, an additional investment by the company because right. you should be growing right. at a certain clip. Right. Um, and that needs funding too. Right. And we've talked about that gap. We have, yeah. In here. And people, yeah. I think, um, in the early, early stages and without other experience, completely forget it. Yep. And then you don't have enough capital that you've been working tirelessly yep. to raise. And then you pinch somewhere, whether it's marketing team yeah. or you don't buy as much, so therefore you don't have the inventory to be able to generate the revenue yep. targets 
that you said you would. Yep, that's a great piece of advice. Um, let me see. On the positive side, I would say communication yeah. by the founder with their investors mm-hmm. in a periodic, it doesn't have to be monthly necessarily, but in a quarterly way that just summarizes what was accomplished, what was learned, and asks. Mm-hmm. Because I can call you on a weekly basis and say, how can I help? How can I help? But you're so embroiled in the daily right. battle reacting to building a business that it's hard to pull away yeah. uh, and kind of come up with those requests yeah. in a thoughtful manner. That's, I mean, super, super helpful. I feel like that's kind of, you just sort of summarized everything. <laughs> Do you have any other notes from my from my pregame notes that I sent you that you just want to get off your chest? No, I don't think so. I mean, the only thing I really didn't speak too is yeah. of course that SWAT equity we find ourselves a little bit more unique amongst the other VCs out there that are looking at consumer largely because of this this combination of skill sets that I mentioned earlier and I just want to make sure I I described what that is okay it is my background of, of finance and investing yep uh, working with businesses and founders to help them continue to prudently scale yep and my partner, Mark, has a very similar background doing it for a while longer. But Richard uh, Kirschenbaum has got an incredible creative background. Yeah. And we thought, if you're going to be working in the consumer landscape and figuring out what really differentiates that brand, right. how it will evolve over time, I need somebody yeah. and a team and some people that really do understand how those marketing strategies yep. can really support or not a company. Right. So I find having him and that talent and that instinct yep. and experience, obviously, that he's built over his career is, is pretty critical for the way we source, assess brand DNA, and then we try to be helpful afterward. I think what's so funny about the way things go is that he's like a quintessential copywriter. <laughs> he's like a mad He man, is a madman. Right? And the thing is, is like, you can have all the digital tools at your disposal. At the end of the day, you're either building a commodity or you're building a brand. Exactly. And the difference between a brand and a commodity kind is of is good copy. Yeah, yeah. it's you a know? great like, way to articulate. It's, it's, it's everything. And people, there was a moment there where everyone thought they could create everything. Yeah. And now everyone's realizing, actually, we need some real writers to write this stuff and some real photographers to capture this stuff. Exactly. Um, all right, Sarah, I can't thank you enough. Oh, this it was, was such a so pleasure. Helpful. Thank you so much I enjoy much talking for being to you here. anytime, yeah. anyway. So thank you for having me no, on. My pleasure. My pleasure. And um, if people want to pitch you. <laughs> <laughs> Where do they find yeah. you? Where do they find you? They can email me at oh, Sarah. that might be dangerous. I know. But okay. Uh, but that's okay. Sarah, <laughs> S-A-R-A-H at SWATEquityPartners.com. Okay, awesome. Uh, Thank you for listening to In The Sauce. I have Jordan Salcido from Ramona coming on next week to talk about, um, yeah, wine in a can. Excellent. Perfect timing that time of year. I know, exactly. And Max, Matt is not here today, but thank you for being engineer extraordinaire. And um, you will hear me all next time on In The Sauce.